Please be seated. We have a special treat today. Our preacher will be Chelsea Matt. Chelsea has been worshiping with us for a few months now. Chelsea is working on her PhD in the Old Testament at Emory University, and uh, she has a particular specialization in the prophets. So in Advent, we hear about the prophets in the Old Testament. And so who better to come and speak to us today about the prophets than Chelsea? Let me pray for Chelsea and Alice before she finishes. Gracious God, we thank you that you raise up people in your church to proclaim your word. Men and women, they have ordained you. We pray that as Chelsea speaks to us, we may hear your word to us today. Bless her as she speaks. Bless us as we listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christ came. The Christ comes. And the Christ will come again. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, a season where we simultaneously remember that God has been present with us in the past, is present with us now, and will be present with us in the future. Thus, the threefold proclamation of the season affirms divine presence. The Christ came, the Christ comes, and the Christ will come again. And yet in this movement, the same proclamation speaks just as loudly of divine absence, the times in between God's coming, where we wonder where God has gone, whether or not God is good, and if God will ever act again on our behalf. And so Advent is also marked by anticipation, longing, and maybe even desperation. The Christ came, the Christ comes, and the Christ will come again. Into this season of present absence, the narrative lectionary has assigned us Habakkuk as companion, an unusual choice for the Christian calendar, but perhaps a worthy travel partner as we walk together toward the advent of Christ this holiday season. Our reading this morning moves us forward in time about 100 years from last week's sermon, if you were here, on the reign of Hezekiah, and the miraculous preservation of Jerusalem from the forces of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. According to the Judahite historians who gave us the Book of Kings, Hezekiah's time was one of divine favor, and Hezekiah was a mostly good king, although no one comes in as truly good in the Book of Kings. In contrast, uh, the tone of today's reading has likely already given you impression, the impression that things did not stay so good. While it is true that Judah experienced significant economic prosperity during the century following Hezekiah's reign, the Neo-Assyrian Empire began to wane, leaving space for Judah to enter, uh, the, to Judah's political economy to grow independently of imperial pressures, and allowing Judah to fully enter the international economy of the 7th century. Yes, that's BCE. <laughs> On the surface, the situation was good. Or at least it was good for the royal house and the local elite. The situation of the disenfranchised, the impoverished, and the marginalized stood in contrast to that of the wealthy. Judah's economy, like Israel's before it, 
had created a tenuous situation for the majority population, whose ancestral land holdings had been threatened and even absorbed by the royal house, and whose labor had served the growth of the kingdom over and above the needs of the household. As a result, at the end of the 7th century, Kings describes a series of monarchs that the historians evaluate almost totally negatively. And, importantly, the book narrates the emergence of a new imperial power, one that might be more familiar to you than the Neo-Assyrians. This imperial power would fill the vacuum that the, downcline, that the decline of the Neo-Assyrian Empire had left in the ancient world. That new empire was Babylon. In this historical moment, one marked by political uncertainty and shifting powers, we find Habakkuk. Now the book of Habakkuk can be divided into three movements. In the first, Habakkuk issues a complaint to God about the pressing threat of violence, injustice, and trouble in Judah. Habakkuk, like the prophets Hosea, Amos, and Micah before him, sees and denounces the social situation around him. But, instead of issuing an indictment against the people, Habakkuk takes his protest directly to God, accusing God of inaction on behalf of the good in the community. Habakkuk's complaint about the divine absence in his day is met with an answer. God promises to deploy the international power of his time against the unjust in Judah. That is, God says God is raising up the Babylonian Empire against and will use its imperial force to end the injustice in Habakkuk's community. Now, if you know anything at all about Babylon, you know that it was a force much larger and much stronger than Judah. They inherited the brutal and effective military tactics of the Neo-Assyrian Empire before them, including the practices of siege warfare and mass deportation. Their violence radically changed life in their conquered territories, devastating human and other-than-human populations alike. So if you were disturbed during the reading today, you're in good company. So was Habakkuk. As a result, in the second major movement of the book, beginning just before the reading of chapter 2 today, Habakkuk issues a second complaint against God. By this time, Habakkuk may have had a personal experience of the punishing presence of Babylon. In fact, we might even place this portion of the book between Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem in 597, during which some of the population was forcefully deported, and the total conquest of Jerusalem in 586, when the temple was destroyed and the traditional exile, that I'm sure you've heard of, began. Having thus experienced Babylon's force, Habakkuk calls God out. He asks, is this your justice, God? According to Habakkuk, Babylon is like the ancient deity Mot, death personified swallowing up both the good and the wicked alike. <clears throat> he sees that Babylon has done violence to the earth, violence to human beings, and made its own strength like its God. 
So he resolves himself into one, stating, I will keep watch to see what God will say to me, and what God will answer concerning my complaint. And for the second time in the book, God does answer Habakkuk, this time assuring Habakkuk that Babylon, like Assyria before it, would fall. The divine assurance of Babylon's destruction leads into the final movement of the book. Chapter 3 contains a mythic hymn drawing on an alternative creation myth, yes, different than Genesis 1, in which God creates the earth and everything in it through conflict and struggle. The hymn claims that God's ability to defeat the pre-existent chaos demonstrates that God is a warrior well-suited to subdue the historical forces of Babylonian, the Babylonian army. According to the book, Habakkuk is thus quieted by this liturgical reminder of God's powerful presence, even in the absence of evidence of God's justice. Each of these movements are represented in today's readings. And most notably, each reading focuses on the voice of Habakkuk rather than on the divine voice, as he wrestles with both the absence and the presence of God. In the first two, Habakkuk's voice is one of protest, decrying injustice in his community and the apparent injustice of God. In the final, Habakkuk rests from protest, but offers us no resolution. Instead, as a result of the advancement of the Babylonian army, the cultivated world remains desolate. The fig tree does not blossom. The grapevine bears no fruit. The olive tree fails. The fields yield no grain. The flock and herd are cut off. Habakkuk demanded God's presence, but continues to experience divine absences the good and community that God brings God's people, the flourishing of wild and cultivated spaces that brings food for all, the peace that comes with freedom from violence. As an Advent text, then, Habakkuk suits a sense of seasonal longing, and perhaps even the agonized wrestling depicted by Jesus in today's Gospel reading. <coughs> Christ came, Christ comes, and Christ will come again, but what about the spaces in between? The spaces where divine absence presses more firmly against us than does divine presence. For many, Habakkuk itself answers the question. At the center of the book and of today's readings is the most recognizable verse in a book that Let's be honest, few of us actually read. <laughs> Verse 2-4 states, Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. There it is again. But the righteous live by their faith. The concept is likely pretty familiar to each of you, as the phrase is quoted in the New Testament. And appropriated by especially Reformation Christianity uh, to suggest that Christian identity is marked by a belief in God over and above works or practice. Right? That might be a familiar idea. 
Today, it is not uncommon to hear empty phrases uttered in the face of suffering that sound something like, just have faith. God works in mysterious ways, or some variation. And the implication there is that faith contrasts doubt and precludes questioning. Now, Brandon has introduced me as a biblical scholar, so I will graciously bow out of a prolonged argument with Luther, leaving that task to others better equipped than I. Instead, I'd like to offer a few comments on today's reading as it belongs to the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Christian Old Testament. If I say it simply, I would just simply say this conceptualization or this idea of faith is foreign to the Old Testament. In fact, the translation of the verse in most English Bibles is heavily influenced by an accumulation of that Reformation theology into the present day. That theology that heavily emphasizes faith or belief as sort of cognitive, right, intellectual, or maybe emotional, something in the heart, assent to the existence of God as associated, and an associated set of divine characteristics, as central to what it means to be a Christian. But the Hebrew here would be better translated faithfulness, and thus oriented around practice or action in the world. Faith in Habakkuk, then, is an orientation of one's life ways toward the goodness that is a marker of the righteous life. I'll say that one more time. Faith in Habakkuk is an orientation of one's life ways towards the goodness that is a marker of the righteous life. And this, I think, may speak into those persistent spaces where what is most present to us is absence. To have faith, or better to live faithfully in the divine absences, is to let one's life be a testimony to the good, to protest injustice and suffering in the world, and even to hold God accountable. Yes, I think that's Habakkuk's model for us. When we can't see the evidence of the goodness of divine presence in the world around us. So, is this then Advent hope for the beginning of a new season? I must confess, ours is a time when hope seems to be the ultimate absence. Some of you know that I was in Denver last weekend, just 70 miles away from, the, from Colorado Springs, when the shooting of Club Q needlessly stole five lives out of hatred. hatred. I am angry, I am grieved, and faced with the persistent reality of such violence, I often lack hope. As in the time of Habakkuk, a failure of justice seems to mark our social life. We might protest, where is justice for the LGBTQIA2S plus community? or justice for indigenous peoples, or justice for the earth and all other than human life therein. Sometimes all I can see is the failure of fig, grape, olive, grain, and flock. Still, today, collectively, we lit the candle of hope. 
And I am reminded that to light a candle is an action, one that creates presence in the midst of absence, light in a dark room. Perhaps it is this, uh, this itself that is a glimmer of hope. But may we also add our voices of protest and our lives as testimony to our act of Advent hope today, making a small act of faithfulness, a mighty act of divine presence in our communities and in our world. The Christ came. The Christ comes. And the Christ will come again. In those in-between spaces, we are God's.